open our Bibles this morning to Matthew uh, chapter 27. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, uh, there are men coming up the aisles right now. They do have Bibles. And if you just wave to them and get their attention, they'll get one into your hands. It's so important to not only hear the word of God, but follow along with our own eyes. That way the word is coming in both the eye gate and the ear gate and having double and triple the impact on us. And that's what the word of God to have its full impact upon our our lives. Uh, Sunday morning, we're studying the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. And we find ourselves fully and wonderfully immersed in the very day of his crucifixion. We'll be looking specifically at Matthew chapter 27, verse 38 through 44. But we'll pick it up in verse 33 to establish a little context. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull, they gave Jesus sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. And then they crucified him, divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there. And they put over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And those who passed by, they blasphemed Jesus, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he's the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if he'll have him. For he said, I am the son of God. And even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Let's pray together. Father, it's so easy, you know, you live inside of us. So easy for our life to be dominated by the trivial things that mean absolutely nothing in life. And we thank you for the privilege of being able to turn to your word, Lord, and to turn to something that's going to outlive the heavens and the earth, to turn, Lord, to the book that speaks of the most important things in life, the things that will outlive this life and outlive this very heavens and very earth. And we pray, Lord, for a work of your Holy Spirit in this room this morning and in each of our individual lives that will open this word up to us and give us a greater understanding of our Savior. And with that greater understanding, Lord, a greater appreciation for him. We look to you for that. We have come for that, Lord. We look forward to receiving it from you and experiencing it in fellowship with your spirit. We pray for each one that stands before you right now that hasn't yet put their faith in Jesus for their salvation. We pray that today something would click in their heart and in their mind 
They would understand something they never have before, something from your voice, Lord, as their creator, and that today would be the day that they would enter into relationship with you through your son. You know what needs to happen in their lives for that to happen. We pray that that would happen, Lord, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The writer of the book of Hebrews spoke of how Jesus viewed the cross that he was crucified on and all of the events surrounding that crucifixion when he told us by the Spirit of God that Jesus endured the cross despising the shame. And the shame of the cross and his despising of that shame was not limited to the physical suffering that he endured on that cross. But it also speaks of the blasphemy and the mocking and the reviling. Those are the words that are used in the, in the text. The mocking, the blasphemy, the reviling that he endured from man while he hung on that cross as well. For many among the Jewish religious leaders at the time, Jesus' crucifixion did not satisfy them. It wasn't enough for them to see him killed. It wasn't enough for them to see him hanging, suffering, dying on that cross. They sought additional ways to shame him. They sought additional ways to humiliate him. Additional ways to make his death as miserable as they possibly could. There was nothing more they could do to his body. His body is covered from head to toe with the physical beatings and lashings that he had taken. Nothing more to meet out upon his body physically. But they weren't done yet. Now they began to lay stripes to his heart and to his mind as he hung upon that cross, to heap their blasphemy upon him, their mocking and reviling upon him. You would have thought that even the worst of men would have looked at Jesus hanging innocently on that cross, and they knew him to be innocent of any wrongdoing on that cross. And that they would have seen him hanging on that cross uh, innocent, not because of any moral darkness in him, but because of the moral darkness of their heart. And that they would have slinked away from the area of that cross and then spent the rest of their entire lives trying to ease their conscience and quiet their conscience to convince themselves that what they did was right and needed to be done. But the hatred of these men toward Jesus couldn't be satisfied with merely securing his death. We're told in verse 39 that they then proceeded to blaspheme him. And the Greek word for blaspheme in verse 39, it comes from two other Greek words. One word meaning to injure and the other word meaning speech. It refers to injurious Speech, speech that is uttered with the intent of harming the hearer, with the intent of damaging their mind, with the intent of inflicting pain upon their heart. 
it could easily be translated to beat with words. In other words, having accomplished the thorough mutilation of his physical body, now they endeavor to inflict the very same pain and damage upon his heart and his mind through the use of words. His heart and mind couldn't be reached through the physical lash. You damage the heart and you damage the mind through words. And so they proceed now with that intent. We're told in verse 44 that they also reviled him. And the word reviled can mean to mock, to disgrace, to assail with abusive words. We might call it, if you come from an athletic background, they're trash-talking the Son of God. I always hated trash-talking when I was involved in sports. I had no respect for anyone that would engage in it. And I uh, heard my fair share of it. I thought it was classless. But I mean, imagine, I mean, as much as you would dislike it in any venue or any situation or circumstance, here you have men that claim to be representing God, trash-talking the Son of God while He hangs innocently upon the cross. And so they're ridiculing him, making fun of him, making a joke of him, of his teaching, of his claims. And this was the motive, the intent of their heart and their mind behind the statements that they heaped upon him. Imagine, if you would, someone that is visiting someone who is dying and on their deathbed. And they've lived this exemplary life. Death is now only hours away. And at the moment, and I think most of us in this room have visited someone who is in that place where now hospice has been brought in or whatever the situation is or at one of the local hospitals and everybody knows that we're talking uh, no longer about days, but we're talking now about hours. And we watch the person that's in that kind of place do everything that they can. The body is failing them. The body is in the failure of the body. The demands of the body are requiring everything uh, of them, of their mind, of of their heart. The demands are so uh, great. And when all of their and it's a time in life when all of a person's heart, all of their mind, all that it can handle at the moment is just pure comfort and just Pure encouragement. And what if somebody walked into their room and began to heap their hatred and their mocking and their scorn upon that person? What if someone entered into that room and proceeded, not just for minutes, but for hours to make fun of them? The life they lived, the things that they taught, make fun of their condition, making their final hours and minutes of their life just a pure misery. We'd look at that person, we'd run them out of the room and, and call them the monster that they would be. And yet that's exactly what the Jewish religious leaders did to Jesus while he hung upon the cross. And lest you think I overstate the case, the effect that this concerning the effect that this mocking had upon Jesus, I want to read to you from Psalm 69, one of the great messianic psalms of the Old Testament, where God gives us a revelation of the thought of the Messiah 
upon the cross of Jesus upon that cross, written by David, but fulfilled by Christ, the volume of the book testifying of Jesus. And in Psalm 69, the Messiah cries out to, to the Father, You know my reproach, my shame and my dishonor. My adversaries are all before you. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. And they also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. I think it's interesting that God would want us to know the impact that their blasphemies and their reviling had upon Jesus while he hung upon the cross. Because I think we can sometimes just pass through this portion of the day of his crucifixion and just be tempted to ask ourselves, well, why didn't he just reject the whole group of them? And, and everybody knows that they weren't up to no good. And, and why didn't he just not care one bit about what it is that they had to say? But that's not how the heart of God operates toward his creation. I don't know that there's a greater lie that's been put to rhyme than the old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Words create a pain in the mind. They create a pain in the heart that are every bit as deep as anything you can do to a person's human body. And the scars of those wounds will outlive a any kind of physical wound that we might endure in life. They wound deeply, and apart from Christ, they can wound permanently. I think of how a cruel or careless word that's spoken to a child at a moment of vulnerability, and how apart from Christ, they'll carry that wound all of their lives. I think about a husband or a wife when one or the other in a moment of anger or frustration takes something that the other has said, something that they've revealed from the depth of their heart or the depth of their mind, something that's made them extremely vulnerable in sharing that with another person. And then when that something that has been shared is taken by this other person and it's used against them or thrown back into their face or mocked or scorned or made fun of apart from Christ, those kinds of things can leave a heart and mind wounded for life. Concerning the tongue, James wrote in his epistle, he said, even so the tongue is a little member and it boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and it sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire by hell itself. I'll tell you, never was that statement of James more true than how the tongue and the speech of man was used against Christ on the day of his crucifixion. Those tongues were set on fire by hell itself for sure. Let's take note of their blasphemies and their revilings. 
In verse 40, we're told that they declared to him, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. And here we have them mocking Jesus's teaching. Remember, Jesus was not executed in a quiet little building in some hidden part of Jerusalem. He was executed on a cross in a public place on one of the busiest roads in Jerusalem. And it would have been a busy road on any day of the week or any day of the year. It was more busy than usual because so many pilgrims were coming in and out of the city of Jerusalem associated with the Feast of Passover. And here he is crucified by this road, less than a stone's throw really away from the location of uh, of the temple there. And as he's being crucified publicly, it was the Roman way to do this, crucify a man publicly, place the charge, his cause of death, uh, the reason for his crucifixion on a placard above his head so that all of the citizens and non-citizens of Rome that passed by would look up, see what the charge was that the man was guilty of, and then determine never to be guilty of that charge themselves because Rome was communicating, this is where a life of crime is going to lead you. It was used as a deterrent to crime, and it was an effective deterrent. We're told that some of those who were passing by, they blasphemed Jesus, and they did so while wagging their heads. That's the, that's the opposite of nodding your head. When we nod our head, we nod our head up and down. And it's a nonverbal way of affirming someone in something that they're saying. It's a, it's a gesture of encouragement. To wag the head back and forth meant the exact opposite. It was to communicate displeasure on the part that was doing the wagging of the head, to communicate disapproval. And it was the action of someone who was convinced of their own righteousness, their own rightness in making this comment or this nonverbal comment toward another person. It's interesting that this wagging of the head while blaspheming the Messiah was prophesied a thousand years earlier in Psalm 22. And David writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, speaking on behalf of the Messiah, and he said, all those who see me ridicule me, they shoot out the lip, they shake the head. And they're fulfilling Psalm 22 and have no idea that they're doing that. Jesus had taught when he was confronted by the Jewish religious leaders following his cleansing of the temple early in his public ministry. When he cleansed the temple of the religious thieves that were extorting money from people and with the animals and overcharging and abusive in their overcharging for the exchange of money, he turned the tables of the money changers uh, over. He let loose the animals he, he, and, and made a chaos of things in a way that nobody else had ever done. And basically what he was upset about in a righteous anger was that these people were misrepresenting God so terribly that a righteous anger within him required him to do it. And when he was done doing it, the religious leaders came to him and they demanded some kind of a sign as an evidence 
for his authority for doing so. And he responded immediately to them. He didn't need five seconds, ten seconds, five minutes to know what to say to these men. He said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. But he spoke it of his body. He wasn't speaking of the physical temple, Herod's temple, that was the grounds of which he was on 46 years in the building. They asked for a miracle. They asked for a sign that would demonstrate his authority for cleansing the temple of God Almighty. And he gave them the sign of his resurrection. That after they put him to death, he would raise himself from the dead three days later. Later on this very morning of this crucifixion, at his trial before the high priest Caiaphas and the elders, in an effort to find some wrongdoing in his life, some charge that they could lay against him, some charge worthy of death, two false witnesses, were told, came forth to testify against Jesus, forwarding the lie that Jesus had declared that he would destroy the physical temple and build it in three days. In other words, they were communicating that he was a danger to the very existence of the temple. After all, hadn't he cleansed the temple twice in his three and a half year public ministry? If he wasn't a danger to the temple, then who in Israel was a danger to the temple? And thus, they declared him to be a threat to the main symbol of their religion and thus to their religion as well. But Jesus was declaring that his resurrection from the dead would prove a greater threat to what they had turned the Old Testament into with their man-made traditions and false interpretations than destroying the temple ever could accomplish. And so his resurrection did. And here they're deliberately distorting and mocking Jesus' teaching, communicating that he must be a false prophet, he must be a false teacher, He must be a false leader and thus not worthy of being believed or followed because his opportunity to destroy and raise the temple up again was now gone with his crucifixion. And they had no interest in understanding what he had said and no interest in properly representing his teaching. And I think of how many people today reject Jesus in his teaching on the basis of some lie someone is saying about him, some falsehood that's spread by his enemies, those who speak authoritatively concerning him or on behalf of him, but have never taken the time to fully examine his life and his teaching. And there are so many people that are in that camp. If you don't know Christ today, if you don't know the first thing about his life, nothing about him. After this service, you come right up to the front here and ask one of these people that will be up front after the service for a free Bible and will get one into your hands. And you search the Bible yourself concerning the life and the teaching of Christ and come to your own decision 
concerning him. Don't accept the decision someone else has come to, and sometimes in the darkness of their own heart. I think one of the miserable experiences in life is to be misquoted and to be misrepresented. Nobody likes that. We have laws in the United States of America to protect people against libel and against being uh, falsely represented because none of us likes it. To have somebody say we said something that we never said or that we did something that we never did. And then word comes back to us and the report is given to us and we dislike the false report that's being spread around about us. I think that's one of the greatest frustrations for me. And I don't have many frustrations as a pastor, but one of the great frustrations as a pastor is to have some you say something Maybe in a teaching and someone catch you right at the back door afterwards and says, I loved how you said that Jesus is coming back uh, on Christmas Eve this year. <laughs> Excuse me, I don't think I I don't think I said that in the course of the sermon. But they say things, it's just and you're we're both in the same room. Sometimes it happens in counseling sessions where somebody will say this and this and that. And you say, well, biblically, here's what the Bible says on this and that. And then someone will come back and they'll be upset with me at the back door and say, I can't believe that you told her such and such from the Bible. And this was the stand that you took and the counsel that you gave. And I'm just listening to it. And it's something I would never say. Now, in old days, I'd want to track it down and fix it. Now I'm just too old and tired. I just can't do it. I'll just leave it with the Lord now. So I look at, and and some of you know, as God is my witness, I I will say, I I don't even want to know where you heard it. I don't want the name in my mind. I don't want, I don't want to, I don't want to be a part of what this is here. But let me tell you how I see biblically the issue that you've raised. And what a person thinks of me or doesn't think of me is very, very insignificant. But what a person thinks about Christ and what a person does with Christ, that has eternal consequences. And again, for those of you who don't know Jesus, you haven't searched him out on your own. The surest place to get the very best, perfect information about him is to get that from the Bible. And here's an entire group of people who are rejecting him based upon something he never said and he never meant. And so many today have come to their conclusions about Jesus based upon something he never said, but others have told you that he has said or did. Don't trust me. Don't trust them. Don't trust anyone. It's your eternity that's at stake. You find out for yourself. Search the scriptures for yourself. Notice in verse 40, they also said, If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In this, they are mocking his claim to be the Son of God. They said, If you are the Son of God, daring him to prove his deity, to prove his relationship with the Father as God the Son, by coming down from the cross. 
In other words, if he were the son of God, then he ought to be able to perform a miracle and come down from the cross. And they reasoned that his inability to do that proved that his claim to be the son of God was false. And here they make a terrible, terrible mistake, a mistake that is made continually into this very hour in human history. They demand that Jesus give them a miracle of their own choosing as an evidence for his claim to be the son of God and thus as a basis for putting their faith in him. And the first problem with this is that they were either self-deceived or dishonest in their demand, because if they wanted some miracle from his life, as an evidence for his claims to be the son of God, they had miracles enough and more from one end of Israel to the other, top to bottom, left to right. He left a sea of people who were blind and he gave them their sight, deaf, and he gave them their hearing, lepers who were cleansed of their leprosy, men and women who were raised from The dead demons cast out of people who were hopelessly demon possessed. And if signs and wonders alone were a satisfactory basis for their faith, then they would have already been believing the signs that Jesus had given them were stunning quality and quantity. Any honest person would have looked at his life and his teaching and his miracles in the light of God's word and concluded, this is the promised Messiah. This is the promised son of God. But they pretend that they need a little more evidence to convince them. But they don't have any intention in believing in him or becoming one of his followers. And in their hearts, they know they're not looking for a reason for faith, but a reason for unbelief. And Jesus knew that there was nothing he could do for them. It would never be enough. They were determined not to believe. And there are people like that in the world today. But it's not just this that they're doing 2,000 years ago. But as I said, it marks many people even today. Men and women who demand that God prove himself to them in some extraordinary way, but always a way of their choosing in order to secure their faith. God, if you're real, then do such and such a thing for me and I'll believe in you. God, if you're real, give me the numbers to the winning lottery and I'll believe in you. God, if you're real, then let an angel appear in my bedroom right now and then I'll believe in you. God, if you're real, then heal me of this sickness or this disease and then I'll believe in you. God, if you're real, then cause this circumstance that's going on in my life uh, right now to have this particular ending to the story and then I'll believe in you. We are not to demand that our faith in Christ as the Son of God, be based upon signs and miracles of our own choosing. But we are to be willing to base our faith in Christ as the Son of God, based upon the signs of His choosing, the proof that He has given to us. 
Jesus plainly condemned the former attitude of demanding signs and wonders as a basis for faith on top of the evidence that God had already given. Jesus said it's a wicked and adulterous generation that seeks after a sign. And as they demanded this man-chosen miracle from Jesus, Jesus knew that he was about to supply them with an even greater miracle for faith, his death, his burial, and three days later, his resurrection from the dead. And what made those series of events a miracle greater than any miracle that we could come up with and demand of God. Because they confirmed Jesus to be the Son of God based upon the Scriptures. Because the Scriptures declared that the Messiah would die. Isaiah chapter 53, he was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Elsewhere in Isaiah 53, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. The scriptures further prophesied that the Messiah would rise from the dead. Psalm 16, verse 10. David wrote by the Spirit, he said to God, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol. And then he wrote of the Messiah, Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. David wrote a thousand years before Jesus was born that the Messiah, when he came into the world, would die, but he would not remain in that dead condition long enough for his body to rot. In other words, he prophesied the resurrection from the dead of the Messiah, just as Jesus did. And these that are blaspheming him are foolishly and ignorantly asking Jesus to do something that if he did that, would disqualify him to be the Messiah and to be the Son of God. That's how ill-advised their demand was. I mean, you look at these religious people and you ask, did you never read the Bible? Did you never read it from one end to the other with an honest heart for a single day that you would demand of him the very thing that you ought to have known would disqualify him as the Messiah if he delivered that to you? And the demands that people put upon God to prove himself worthy of their faith today are typically just as ill-advised. The greatest miracle imaginable was developing before their very eyes if they only knew their Bibles well enough to recognize it and if they only possessed enough humility to accept it. The greatest evidence for Jesus' claim to be the Son of God is the Scriptures and his fulfillment of the prophetic scriptures concerning the Messiah. Notice third in verse 42. They 
declared to him, if he is this king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. Here they mock his claim to be the king of Israel. How could he be the king of Israel? He's dying on a cross. And so they threw this at Jesus, his claim to be the king. How can you be a king? You're in the process of dying upon a cross. And in their mind, his death upon the cross completely repudiated his claim to be the king of Israel. And again, here their ignorance of the scriptures is on full display once again, though they consider themselves to be the experts in the scriptures In their teaching concerning the coming of the Messiah at the time of Jesus, the Jewish religious leaders of the day completely emphasized the Old Testament portrait of the Messiah coming as a conquering king. To the same degree that they emphasized that side of the Messiah, they de-emphasized the other side of the Messiah that was described there and was equally true, and that was that the Messiah would come into the world as a suffering Savior. And thus, when the disciples, even the disciples, kept waiting for Jesus to rise up, unite the people into a successful uh, revolution against Rome to overthrow Roman Empire for him then to be set himself up as a king and establish the kingdom age. That was the popular teaching of the day concerning the Messiah. He's going to come. He's going to have muscles like Popeye. He's going to make everything right. He's going to make everything great, change it, all of it. And that was the teaching that Uh, that they were emphasizing. And when you go to the Old Testament and you look at the Scriptures and you see these two portraits of the Messiah, here He is, the conquering King, coming and ruling with a rod of iron and and no wrongdoing being allowed and and the glory of the the kingdom age and the beauty that will turn this world into. And then you see here that speaks of His suffering and the scourging and the blasphemy and the death. And you look at the two portraits and they look mutually exclusive. And so you ask yourself, how in the world can this describe the same person? How can he suffer and die and still be a conquering king? And that's the dilemma they faced. And how they dealt with it is the way that many people deal with the scriptures on some other issues even today. They decided to emphasize the more popular message. And so they emphasized the coming of the Messiah. They emphasized the portrait of the Messiah as the conquering king. And they de-emphasized almost completely no emphasis upon the suffering Savior. So by the time Jesus comes to suffer on a cross, an entire generations of God's people have been indoctrinated to look for a Messiah exclusively that looks like this. And so they're confused at seeing Christ upon the cross. And Isaiah the prophet had prophesied that because of Israel's failure to accept or reject the Messiah based upon all of the Old Testament prophecies, which spoke of him both as a suffering Savior and as a conquering king, that they would be ultimately stumbled by the Messiah when he came, stumbled by his lowliness and his humility, 
Isaiah chapter 8, verse 13. And the Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. He will be as a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of, of offense to both the houses of Israel as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble. They shall fall and be broken, be snared and taken. And so they were. And thus, when Jesus came, virtually everyone was indoctrinated into thinking of the Messiah one dimensionally as this conquering king. But the scripture said he would be both. How could that be? Two comings of the Messiah. In his first coming, Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies that spoke of the suffering Savior. In his second coming, he will fulfill the Old Testament prophecies ascribed to the conquering king portrait of the Messiah. And it's in the two comings that Jesus will unite all of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah Prophecies that would otherwise appear mutually exclusive in the scriptures. It's crazy. But again, the very things that they thought disqualified Jesus to be the Messiah and mocked him and scorned him for were the very things that qualified Jesus to be the Messiah. Notice number four in verse 43. They mocked him by saying he trusted in God, let him deliver him. Now, if he will have him, for he said, I am the son of God. And here they claimed that Jesus had no relationship with God. Much less a relationship as the son of God. They claimed he had no relationship with God at all. Otherwise, God would deliver him. And I think this is probably the cruelest thing that they said to him while he hung upon the cross, because it not only attacked his claim to any relationship with God the Father, but it attacked the idea that God loved him and that God had any concern for him at all. And I think of how often our enemy, the devil, speaks the same lie to us. In some difficult circumstance in life. How could God love you? Look at the condition of your life. Look at the circumstance that you find yourself in. How could he allow someone that he loves to allow this kind of thing to happen? But God would demonstrate his love for Jesus in a far greater way than taking him off that cross. And he could have taken him off that cross in a second. God demonstrated his love for Jesus in a far greater way through his resurrection from the dead. God was up to something better. And the same thing is always true of our lives. When we look at our lives and we say, look at this good thing that my life could be. Look at this good thing that you could do in this situation. And he does not do that good thing. It's always because he knows he is going to do something better than that in time will reveal it. And that's the confidence that we can have in God. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And they're very mocking. 
was prophesied, the mocking that they needed upon, heaped upon Jesus in verse 43, the very words of their mocking were prophesied concerning the Messiah in Psalm 22. And in their mocking, they're further qualifying Jesus as the Messiah without really without even realizing clearly Psalm 22 was not on the seminary course for classes to be taken at the religious uh, schools of that day. Otherwise, they would have caught themselves in the middle of saying it and saying, wait a second, that's the fulfillment of Psalm 22 written about the suffering Messiah. And here I am fulfilling the scriptures never entered their mind. And have the foggiest idea about Psalm 22, which declared that those that were at the base of the cross would mock the Messiah, declaring he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. The father was going to deliver his son, but not in the way that they thought. Could have, as I said, effortlessly removed him from the cross. But God operates with a much bigger picture in mind. Than, than we operate with. And God was going to do something greater than deliver him from that cross. He was going to provide salvation for mankind and then resurrect him from the dead, which brings us to the final statement in verse 42. And didn't skip it. I just wanted to come back to it. Where they mock Jesus by declaring he saved others, himself he cannot save. And here they mock Jesus' claim to be the Savior. Imagine being Jesus three and a half years. You're pouring out your heart. You're giving this revelation of yourself. You love people. You're teaching and all of these things. And then all of these things are being taken and thrown back in your face to wound you. When they said he saved others himself, he cannot save I would contend that no truer words were spoken of Jesus by friend or foe, but not in the way that they intended. They no doubt thinking they very, very clever at, at, at the moment and in, in throwing this phrase out. They had no idea what they were saying. You notice they confessed that Jesus had saved others. And here's a moment of rare Honesty about Jesus on the part of these religious leaders. But they figure can't do any harm now. I mean, we've got him more than half dead hanging on that cross. So we, ought, we, we feel safe in giving credit where credit is due. We have to admit he did save others. And the monuments to his saving power, again, all over the length and the breadth of the land. He left behind him a trail of changed lives the entire Three and a half years of his public ministry. And when they declared himself, he cannot save. The priests used the word cannot in the sense that he was unable to do so or powerless to do so. But in this, they were very, very wrong. When Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and Peter pulls out a sword to try and defend him. Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than twelve legions of angels? 
How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? Earlier in his public ministry, Jesus spoke to these same religious leaders and he said to them, no one takes my life, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it again. This command I have received from my father. But what they were saying was right in a way that they never intended because in order to save us, he could not save himself on that cross. As he hung on that cross and these words were thrown into his face, he could not do both at the same time. He could either save himself and fail in his mission to save mankind, or he could save mankind, but it would require his Death. If Jesus had come down off that cross, could have easily done it himself, we would have been left without a salvation from our sins. But Jesus stayed on that cross all through not only the physical things that he endured, all of the mocking, all of the scorning, and he died so that we could be forgiven and live and have a relationship with God. As the hymn writer wrote, Himself he could not save, he on the cross must die, or mercy could not come to ruined sinners nigh. Mark put the same truth in this way in recording the teaching of Jesus. For even the Son of Man, Jesus said, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life is a ransom for many. One of my favorite verses in all of the Psalms is in Psalm 76, verse 10, which declares, Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. God, by the time he gets done with any situation he's involved in, by the time all of human history is wrapped up, even the wrath of man, will be forced to praise him. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. And I don't suppose that there's any greater fulfillment of the psalmist's declaration in Psalm 76 than what God did with the wrath of man here in overwhelming it and making it a praise to him. He saved others. He himself he cannot save. Spoken to wound, to harm, Spoken to mock and to scorn. And the very line produces worship and thanksgiving and praise in our hearts. Because he died on the cross for our sins. He died so we could live. He saved himself. He saved others rather. Himself he cannot save. They offered him three Great, scorn-filled challenges. Save yourself, verse 40. Come down from the cross, verse 42. Let God save him, verse 43. Essentially, three ways of saying the same thing. Avoid crucifixion. And Jesus heard every bit of all of the blasphemy, all of the mocking, all of the reviling that was heaped upon him. 
during those hours upon the cross. But he silently ignored it in order that you and I might be saved and forgiven this morning. I am so thankful that he did not come down from that cross, but instead paid the price that was required for the forgiveness of sins. And I think not only of his physical punishment that he endured, physical torture that was meted out upon him, but I think also how humbling to realize how easily he might have saved himself, but he didn't in order that we might be saved and we might be forgiven. He was given a choice between himself and us. And wonderfully and awesomely, he chose us too much. That's just sanctified crazy, just wild and beautiful. The heart of God for us. Let's stand together and let's pray. Father, thank you for this revelation of our Savior. Something to be learned about him, even in the mocking and the scorning that was heaped upon him by his enemies. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you not only endured all of the physical harm that was done to you on the day of your crucifixion, but we thank you, Lord, for your willingness to endure all of that mocking and all of that reviling, to endure all of, of that scorn and blasphemy that was heaped upon you, and your willingness, Lord, to endure that shame and remain on the cross so that men and women like us this morning could know you and be saved have the hope of heaven, be forgiven, know God personally, and all of the other things that you have purchased for us on the cross. Thank you, Lord, again this week for enduring the cross while despising the shame and making us indescribably rich as a result. We give you honor. We give you praise. We give you thanksgiving, Lord, from this place and from our hearts this morning for it. And we do so in your name, in Jesus' name. Amen.